the psalmist sought to follow the Lord to live a distinctive and consistent life. And that surely needs to be true for each one of us. And as we stand, let's pray. Father God, we thank you so much for your word. And we pray now by your Holy Spirit that you'll use it to speak to our hearts and our minds, mould us and shape us by your Spirit, and help each one of us to become more and more like Jesus. In whose name we pray. Amen. Do sit down. Time well spent, whether it be the gardener who double digs the soil rather than merely turning it over, or the decorator who thoroughly prepares the walls before papering them, or the cook who spends hours of time in the kitchen to prepare a special meal, the artist who blends together the colours on a canvas to create a masterpiece. Time well spent in these ordinary circumstances, but what about spiritual experiences? How do you spend time with the Lord? And how are you built up in the faith? And how is it nourished and enriched? Is it through worship on an occasion like this tonight, or is it perhaps at the Lord's, Lord's Supper? Is it by hearing a moving testimony? Is it through a sermon or studying the Bible in a small group? Is it best experienced uh, congregationally with other Christians? Or is it silence and solitude? Is that the most rewarding? Of course, it may well be a combination of all of those things. As I've gone on in the Christian life, I turn more and more to the book of Psalms. Because here are words for daily use, whether for praise or confession. Here are words to use when prayer is a struggle and our lips are silent. Here are words that we can echo as we come before the Lord. And when we are tongue-tied, the Holy Spirit can take the words of the Psalms and speak to our hearts. And of course, for thousands of years, the Psalms have been shaping the devotional life of both Jews and Christians. The Psalms were used in the Jewish temple, in synagogues, in monasteries, in cathedrals, in churches, and in homes. Many of our hymns are taken directly from the Psalms. And Isaac Watts, the father of hymnology, adapted all of the psalms for Christian worship. It is also not surprising that at the Reformation, the reformers preached on the psalms and published commentaries on the psalms. Martin Luther regarded the Psalter as the Bible in miniature, and he even suggested that Psalm 130 was Pauline, because it speaks of mercy to the sinner, and of redemption and of forgiveness. And John Calvin said this, I've been accustomed to call this book, I think not inappropriately, 
and anatomy of all parts of the soul. For there is not an emotion of which anyone can be conscious that is not here represented as in a mirror. In the Psalms, the Holy Spirit speaks to our griefs and sorrows and fears, our doubts, hopes, cares, perplexities, in short, all the distracting emotions with which the minds of men are wont to be agitated. Quaint language, but certainly true words. In some sense, we could say, of course, that the Psalter is like a treasure chest, full of precious stones and jewels, but not simply to be admired and put under a glass case, but they are to be adorned and to enjoy. So today, as we look at Psalm 26, we learn about God, and we also look into a mirror, and we see something about ourselves that should inform us and challenge us and shape us and mould us and cause us to ponder and to reflect upon our faith and our feelings, our attitudes and our emotions. Because you can never read a psalm in a detached sort of way and create a sort of pick-or-mix spirituality. Here we touch base with something that is profound and transforming. Here indeed is an anatomy of all parts of the soul, not in black and white, but in full vibrant colour. And as we look at this psalm, ask that the Lord would indeed speak to your heart, and to warm it, and to nourish it, and above all to help you to find the words to shape and to mould your thinking and your prayers, and to meet your deepest needs. So then tonight we look at Psalm 26 under two simple headings concerning two impressions. And then I want to draw out some practical applications. There's an outline on the service sheet with some suggested reading on the Psalms. So then turn with me to page 459 in the Pew Bibles. I'll be using this text and also be referring to the NIV as well. So then a first impression. Think of when you first meet somebody for the first time. It might be a formal, how do you do? Or an informal, hello. You hear their voice and their accent. You look at their clothes and perhaps their tattoos and their facial ironmongery. But what impression might you have of that particular person? Is it right? Is it wrong? Your judgment might be true, it might be false. What is your first impression as you read Psalm 26? Surely the writer sounds very arrogant. One commentator even calls him a self-righteous prig. Everything about him sounded too good to be true. He would be a pain to live with. He sounded like a holy Joe, a Pharisee, someone to avoid sitting next to on a long journey. Anything, even watching daytime television, would be better than being in his company. <laughs> Here then is our first impression. I have led a blameless life. I have trusted in the Lord without wavering. I do not sit with deceitful men. I do not consort with hypocrites. 
I hate meeting evildoers. I refuse to sit with the wicked. Goodness gracious. <laughs> How insufferable. How hypocritical he must have been to say those words. This person is just too perfect. Or so he would have you believe. But of course we need to put his words into a much broader setting and then in terms of the overall context of Psalm 26. We know, of course, that King David was far from perfect. Paint me warts and all, said Cromwell, or he's supposed to have said. And in the Bible, David is not airbrushed and not sanitized. When you read his confession in Psalm 51, you know that he is more like each one of us. He knew that he was a sinner, he had been a sinner since he was born. By nature, as well as by practice, he was a sinner. A sinner, a penitent sinner, who pleaded to God to hear his prayer and to cleanse him from his sin. And of course, if you need to ask God to cleanse you, to forgive you, then get on your knees and read Psalm 51. Look for a moment at verses 1 and 11. In the NIV, it speaks of his blameless life. But in many other versions today, including the one in front of you, it refers to him walking with integrity. And apparently, that is how the word should be understood. Charles Spurgeon helpfully observed that faith is the root and sap of integrity. David wholly trusted the Lord, Judge me, he said, judge me, test me, prove me, examine me. Could you say that? Could I say that? We certainly need to do so. And of course the believer should echo the words of Psalm 86 and verse 11. Teach me your way, O Lord, and I will walk in your truth. Give me an undivided heart that I might fear your name. David's prayer, and our prayer too, should be just that. Give me an undivided heart. Help me to live a blameless life. One commentator says that David's heart really is the Lord's, however badly he sometimes let him down. And certainly that was true of David, and it's certainly just like us, isn't it? We are committed to God, we trust in Christ, but sometimes we fall into sin, deliberate sin, and we fail to live as we should. We ignore the one who has redeemed us. We prefer to wander away from the Lord and drift away from the Lord. We need again and again, I think, to echo the words of that old hymn, Bind my wandering heart to thee. Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the Lord I love. Here's my heart, O oh, take and seal it. Seal it from thy courts above. Put it like that. And the writer of Psalm 26 can be seen in a different light. So then from that first impression, that wrong impression, let's look at a second impression of King David here. Because beneath the surface... And with a more careful reading of the psalm, we have indeed another narrative. This is the story not of a self-righteous prig, but
but of a sinner like you and me, who trusts in the Lord and is prepared to be examined by the Lord. His life without God is worthless. Without, without God, and we are less than we ought to be. In St Augustine's words, without God, all is emptiness. And that emptiness is the lot of the unbeliever. Here then in Psalm 26 is of, is of a sinner whose heavenly Father has reached out to him and he has responded to the Father's love. And while his enemies accused him of various wrongs, he asked that God and not them would be the final judge. In Psalm 26 we discover the covenant God who has pledged himself to his people and of the individual believer as part of the redeemed worshipping community. So look again at the text and what do we find? Here is a faith that is certainly consistent. I have trusted in the Lord. So let him be the judge and not his enemies. I praise you and tell others of your wonderful deeds. I love the place where your glory dwells. David had no dealings with his enemies. He avoided them and hated being in their company. Here then is a sinner who knows his God and whose God knows him. The psalmist delighted to enter the temple and to be in the presence of the Lord. There he enjoyed fellowship with his Lord and with his fellow believers. There the glory of the Lord was present. There the assembled gathering were free to praise him. There the Lord made himself known in their midst. And yet, of course, there is much more too here. King David invites the Lord to deal further with him. He knows in his heart that he is not as he should be. What does he say in verse 2? Test me and try me, examine my heart and my mind. In verse 11, I am open before you, redeem me and be merciful to me. Could you say that? Could you honestly say that? Could I say that? We certainly need to say words like that. The psalmist's apparent self-righteousness is really a call for separation away from those who don't love the Lord and those who don't trust him and obey him. They're described here as evildoers, the bloodthirsty and the wicked. And what were their crimes? They bribed people. They deceived them. They were hypocrites. They too may have attended the temple, but their hearts and their actions were far away from the Lord. So what then tonight can we learn from this psalm? How can we apply these great truths to our lives? I think there are three words of application. First of all, we must be realistic before the Lord. Realistic about what we are really like. The Bible tells us, and we know it to be true, that we are sinners and we need to know God's cleansing and forgiveness. As individuals, we need to experience that love and mercy and redemption for ourselves. It can't be a proxy faith. 
It has to be a real and genuine faith for each one of us. Sin is part of our very nature, and iniquity is what we are rather than what we do. By nature, we are sinners who commit sins. So then be honest before the Lord. Wait upon him. Permit his word and his spirit to prompt your confession of sin and your acknowledgement of your indebtedness to such a great God and loving Heavenly Father who can cleanse you and forgive you and restore you and make you more and more like Jesus. Secondly, we must of course submit ourselves to the Lord himself. That comes across, I think, in verse 2. Test me, try me, examine me. And while his enemies might be hypocritical, the psalmist sought to follow the Lord to live a distinctive and consistent life. And that surely needs to be true for each one of us. So that whether at home, or at work, or at our leisure, we are always the Lord's people, the Lord's true people, and not just Sunday Christians. The psalmist praises the Lord in the assembly of God's people, verse 12. That's where we can praise him. That's where we come together before him, in obedience and in humility. That's where we can come and worship him and ascribe all glory to him. We come together to celebrate and to rejoice and to worship the Lord. And thirdly, we must be seen to be different. And that's probably the hardest thing for each one of us. Not to blend into the background, not to be shaped by the world, but by the word. Not to be hypocritical, not to wear a mask of pretended religiosity. Our walk before the Lord as individuals and as members of that redeemed community is of course far from perfect. And it will remain like that until we reach heaven or until the Lord returns. We are not as we should be, but our intention, our aim, our focus should be clear. Our aim is to walk forward to heaven in the company of the Lord Jesus Christ. He was there with the disciples on the road to Emmaus. And he's there with you in your sorrow and despair, your grief and your pain, your anger and your hurt. He's always there to support you and to protect you and to encourage you. The truths of Psalm 26 need to be etched into our hearts. And we need to be echoing the words of the psalmist. We need to be reminded that we are to trust God without wavering. Always to walk in his truth and to proclaim his love to others. Our aim is to live like Jesus and to be Christ-like in our attitudes and our actions. Yes, we constantly fall and we fail to live as we should. And yes, he constantly picks us up and dusts us down that we might walk with him. By way of conclusion, and as a PS in some sense to studying the Psalms, you may have noticed that tonight I've rarely mentioned the name of Jesus. That has been intentional. 
because we must let the Psalms speak for themselves, because preachers far too often and far too quickly move on from the Old Testament and pass into the New Testament, in some sense using the Old Testament as a pretext for a New Testament sermon. Of course, we read the Old Testament through the filter of the New Testament, but we must always allow the Old Testament to speak for itself. I'm reminded of the words of the hymn writer Isaac Watts when he said this. Here are words that make sense and we must bear them in mind as we read the Psalms. He said this, where the psalmist describes religion by the fear of God, I have often joined faith and love to it. Where he speaks of the pardon of sin through the mercies of God, I have added the merits of the Saviour. Where he talks of sacrificing goats and bullocks, I rather choose to mention the sacrifice of Christ, the Lamb of God. When he attends the ark with shouting into Zion, I sing the assembly of my Saviour into heaven or his presence in his church on earth. And that principle is so clear as we read Psalm 26. Verse 1, I have trusted in the Lord. And we would say, I have trusted in the Lord Jesus. I love your house where you live. David meant the presence of the Lord in the temple. And we would speak of our hearts as the temple of the Holy Spirit. My, stand, my feet stand on level ground. Think of the level ground in front of the cross. In the assembly, I will praise the Lord. He meant, of course, the Jewish temple. And we would mean the assembly of Christian believers. And as someone has put it, in Christ we live in Zion. So think of that when you read the Psalms. Look at them through the filter of the New Testament and apply them to the Christian faith directly. So then let us make the words of Psalm 26 our own. To walk steadfastly before the Lord. To trust in him day by day. And always to live a life that is worthy of the Saviour's love. Let's pray together. Father God, we thank you so much for the clarity of the Psalms, that they speak to us with the words that often we falter with and can't find the right words to say as we pray. Help us to use these words, these ancient words, to speak of all that you've done and all that you continue to do for us. Help us to submit ourselves to you afresh and help us to use these words to confess your name. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.